Second Corinthians chapter five, beginning in verse 11, where we left off. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is instructing the believers about our new bodies that we will one day receive and about our new duties as ambassadors of a risen and an ascended Savior. So Paul is making the claim and advancing the argument that we will not only have new bodies, but a new home in verse one without groan or sighing in verse four, eternal verse two, able to see Jesus face to face. And so with that in mind, Paul is resolved to please God in verse nine and Later, Paul knows that there will be a day of reckoning in verse 10, a day when both the quantity and quality of our lives, our ministries will be presented before the Lord and come under the scrutiny, the evaluation of Jesus. We all have a kind of celestial work performance coming due where we will sit down with our supervisor Now the attention of Paul shifts from the day of reckoning to the day of reconciling in verses 11 through 21. We have a special privilege and task. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation in verse 11 all the way through to verse 21. We are ambassadors of Christ in verse 16. We know that Jesus has reconciled sinners in verses 14 and 15, regenerated repenting sinners in verses 18 and 19. And with all that in mind, Paul continues to examine his heart, his motives, the things that are compelling him to do what he does in ministry. Why would anyone want to deal with so much pain and so much pressure? Why not just give up? Why not just call it a day? Why put up with all the stuff that Paul is putting up with? What is it that compels him to love and serve and remain in ministry? Here's his response. Verse 11, a healthy fear of the Lord. 
Verses 12 and 13, a heartfelt desire to see the saints serve. Verses 14, 15, and 16, a wholesome love for Jesus. Why is that important to you? Because sometimes you might wake up and you might think, why should I do this? Why should I love God? Why should I serve Jesus? Why should I put up with the ridicule and the rejection of family members and friends and a world that sees you as being, well, not having both oars in the water? Let's look. Verse 11, a healthy fear of the Lord. Second Corinthians 5:11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Remember, knowing therefore, remember what we've already learned. When you see the therefore, you look and see what it's there for. In verse 10, remember, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul, keeping that in mind, knowing that his life matters, that he's going to stand before Jesus, he says, knowing the terror of the Lord. Some suggest that the terror of the Lord is God's awesome judgment against sin. And so Paul goes everywhere and speaks to everyone seeking to persuade men to accept and embrace the gospel. I don't think that that's necessarily untrue. But I'm going to suggest to you that the passage more likely refers to what Paul is speaking about, his own healthy fear of the Lord. When we say fear of the Lord, we don't mean I'm terrified that God is going to show up and that my life is going to be over. The Bible speaks of a kind of reverential awe. The idea that knowing that there is a real God and that you're going to stand before him. Paul speaks of the fear of the Lord in that sense. The word terror, by the way, translates the Greek word phobon. You you know that word. We get the word phobia from it. There are. Healthy fears. And there are unhealthy fears. Dr. Harold Uray, who is a Nobel Prize winner and one of the principal contributors to the Manhattan Project, he played an important role in developing the atom bomb. He and his team created a method called gaseous diffusion to separate uranium-235 to uranium-238. He is the one who actually made it possible for the bomb to be made. He wrote, and I quote, I write to you to make you afraid. I myself am a man who is afraid. All the wise men I know are afraid. He's talking about a healthy fear of a catastrophic weapon. There's a reason why we look both ways before we cross the street. We're told to fear God in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. We're told to walk in the fear of the Lord, Acts 9.31. We're told to walk with a singular heart, keeping in mind that there is a real and true God in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. 
And so when Paul is speaking about that again, he is speaking about the reality that he knows that his life is going to be evaluated by God. Paul suggests that God knows the truth about Paul. That's a healthy place to be. But Paul would also like the Corinthians to be persuaded of his integrity, of his faithfulness, of the ministry that he has to the gospel. Again, William MacDonald writes, quote, and so he says, in effect, quote, knowing, therefore, the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade men as to our integrity and sincerity as ministers of Christ. But whether we succeed in persuading men or not, we are made manifest unto God. He knows all about it. And we hope that this will be the case in the consciences of you Corinthians as well. So does that mean that there's no place to persuade men about the truth of the gospel? No, we must. For he has made he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be the righteousness of God. It says in verse 21, Paul persuades men of the judgment of God, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we've done, whether good or bad. Verse 10, Paul persuades men. About the death of Jesus in verse 8. Paul persuades people of our desperate need to be reconciled to God in verse 20. So all of that becomes a part of it. Certainly he's concerned about his integrity. Certainly he's, he's concerned about sincerity. But again we have to draw attention to the fact that Paul says out loud what we all know to be true. God knows the truth about Paul. God knows the truth about me. God knows the truth about you. Even the things that you keep hidden from the people you care about. Even the the dark places, the empty places, those desperate places that you don't talk about. The things that you really care about or the things that you don't really care about. The places where you serve or fail to serve. In other words, God knows the truth about each and every one of us. But this is the important part. The minister's life is inspected by God. But that could be despairing if we reflect too long of what's going on inside of that dark and desperate place. Because here's part of what Paul is saying, if you're willing to accept it. With the inspection comes the possibility for change, the resources for change. Where there's dark places, God can provide light. Where there's empty places, God can provide fullness. Where there's desperate places, God can provide hope. Where there's guilty places, he can provide forgiveness. In other words, the inspection isn't to bring us to a place of hopeless despair, but the reality that Jesus becomes the full and final provision. Paul labors to be accepted by God and to please Jesus. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul refuses to give up 1 Corinthians 4, 1. Paul preaches Christ and not himself, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Paul does everything for the sake of the ministry in 1 Corinthians 4, 15. So he doesn't get overwhelmed by... Wickedness, 
Ask yourself the simple question. Does the fact that you will stand before Jesus and give an account of your life motivate you in any way at all? Only you know the answer to that question. And for some of you, the motivation may be very little or it may be a whole lot. Listen to how Paul talks about the motive. It goes into a heartfelt desire to see the saints served. Look at verses 12 and 13. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Once again, Paul doesn't want to leave the Corinthians with the impression or the misunderstanding or the misinterpretation that he's trying to bring attention to himself. Or that he's trying to make a big deal out of himself. He doesn't want to appear to be boasting. He doesn't want to appear to be self-serving or conceited. So why does Paul give such a lengthy explanation or defense of his ministry? Paul knew he was being criticized by the Judaizers. He knew that he was being criticized by the false teachers in the presence of the Corinthian saints. And so Paul wanted to supply the needed ammunition to those saints so that they would know how to answer the criticism and defend the apostle when he wasn't present to defend himself. Paul describes his critics as those who glory in the outward appearance, but not in the heart. You'll remember if you go all the way back in the Old Testament in first Samuel chapter 16, do you remember when Samuel was picking a new king after Saul had lost favor and he goes to the sons of Jesse and he starts from the oldest and he makes his way down and he goes, wow, that guy looks like Tom Selleck, that guy, look at, look at that guy. This guy is big and tall and handsome. Surely this is the one. And the Lord says, no, that's not the one. What about this guy? He looks like, I mean, he's shorter. He looks like Tom Cruise, but he's handsome. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. And the Lord says, no, no, no. And Samuel says to Jesse, look, none of these are the... Are the guy? Is there anyone else? Well, the runt of the litter is in the back watching the sheep. That's David. Because God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. What's the point that Paul is making? Critics, skeptics, Judaizers, legalists. What were they interested in? Appearance. What is Paul interested in? Integrity, honesty inside of his heart. What are the critics interested in? Appearance. What do the critics promote? Their own novel ideas, their own misguided interpretation of the scripture, their gifts, their abilities, their position, their priority, their charm, their possessions. And so in the end, their heart is centered on themselves and it's not centered on Christ. And so Paul wants them to understand that. 
looking not on the outward circumstances, but on the inward circumstances. And then in verse 13, look what it says. For we, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we are of sound mind, it's for you. By the way, the expression beside ourself is an ancient idiom for. Well, your threads are stripped. You don't have both oars in the water. We have a euphemism for it. Crazy. In Italian, we would say, pazzo. That means that there's something not quite right. We now use less emotionally charged terms. We will use the term mentally ill. We will use the term emotionally unstable. And so Paul, if you look at verse 13, when he says, for if we are beside ourselves, he is drawing attention to the fact that his critics labeled him as insane, fanatical. Even in the book of Acts, when Paul is presenting the gospel before King Agrippa, remember Agrippa says, dude, all of that reading, all of those books, all of that stuff. I think it's made you crazy. And Paul said, I wish that you were exactly like me, except for these chains. Paul doesn't deny that sometimes his expressions of divine fervor on the surface seem extreme. The critics call it insanity and fanaticism. Paul calls it devotion to the Lord. Paul, in effect, offers the explanation that all of his behavior can be explained in one of two ways. Devotion to God or service to others. Or if we are of sound mind, look what it says. It's for you. What do both things have in common? Paul is pointing out that, look, my motives aren't self-serving. They're not selfish. They are unselfish. Question, could the critics of Paul make the same claim? A.W. Tozier also faced the charge of being a little bit crazy. He wrote, quote, a real Christian is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen, talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be full, admits he's wrong so that he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he's weakest, richest when he's poorest, and happiest when he feels worse. He dies so he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so he can keep, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, knows that which passes knowledge. Have you ever been accused of being not quite right? Well, what do you do for fun? I read the Bible and pray. Oh, you're kidding me. Ooh. How can you live with that kind of excitement? Well, what else do you do? I go to church. You're kidding me. Why are we so shocked when our family and our friends misunderstand us? Paul is pointing out, look, what other people see is 
craziness, fanaticism, insanity. Paul understood it to mean devotion. We believe in heaven. We believe that it's a real place. We believe that hell is a real place. So now think about it. Why is Paul misunderstood? Because of his message. Why is Paul misunderstood? Because his mission is unique. We know that there are some people who are not so passionate. We also know that there are people who are apathetic and indifferent. We live in a world that usually responds with, Hey, do you want to go to church? Whatever. Hey, do you want to do something? Whatever. Hey, are you excited about anything? Whatever. Now think about that. We live in a world that has a live and let live mentality. And the moment we affirm that something is true, that something is right, that something is good, we're labeled hypocritical or unkind or judgmental. You know what's sad is sometimes we are hypocritical and sometimes we are unkind and sometimes we are judgmental, but it should never be that way. Because we're motivated with a different message. We actually believe that what the Bible is, says is true, that, that human beings are sinners and that they need a savior and that the emptiness inside of the human heart has a cure. We look around and we see men and women marching towards eternity. We believe that there is a real heaven that we will one day see and that there's a real judgment that needs to be avoided. And so we ask the question, should we intervene? Should we get involved? Do we dare say to people that you need to be reconciled to God? And this is what Paul did. He, that's why he said, I purpose not to know anything among you except for Christ and him crucified. Paul was content to be a fool for God's glory. And he was willing to be considered a fool for the sake of people in order to meet their needs. Well, if I bring up the subject of Jesus, won't people think I'm an idiot? Won't they think I'm foolish? Won't they think that I'm a fanatic? Won't they think I'm weird? They already think you're weird. Just get over it. Move on. Move on to the next thing. But look what else he says. He's motivated by a wholesome love for Jesus. Look what it says in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. I I want you to think about what you're reading. For the love of Christ compels us. Does Paul have a mouse in his pocket? No, he's talking about his companions. Timothy and Titus and all of the people who are working with him, laboring in the gospel for the love of Christ compels us. What makes Paul so fearless and tireless and, do I dare say it, dangerous? Is Paul dangerous, by the way? When he shows up, someone usually winds up going to jail and being beaten, and it's usually him. Is Paul dangerous? 
When lives are changed and communities are transformed. And look what Paul says. Paul concedes the love of Christ compels us. In what sense? Is this Paul's love for Christ? Or is, or is this Christ's love in Paul for us? Which do you think makes more sense? What if I told you that almost certainly, I think grammatically, it means Paul's love for the Corinthians. And yet the only reason we love anyone at all ever is because what John writes in 1 John, because God first loved us. We have the ability to love others. It's the kind of love that God creates inside of us in order to transform us, motivate us, include us in the process of being able to truly care. Remember what Jesus said, they'll know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And what in the world could provide that kind of love unless it's God himself? The word compel or constrain in the old King James means to move along or to press. It can also mean to hold together. Or to hold fast like a group or a crowd of people moving. The way that I I think I I, I would, would encourage you to think about it is think about a mob of people moving in one single direction. Or think about the flow of traffic. Car after car after car piled up going in the same direction. So I'm going to suggest to you that when he says for the love of Christ compels us. We might think of it as the energy, the ability to keep moving, to keep going, to put one step in front of the other. What an amazing statement. Now, think about this. When Paul says the love of Christ compels us, Paul doesn't say The teaching of Christ compels me or the doctrine of Christ compels me or the ministry of Christ compels me or the life of Christ motivates me. All of those things are important. All of those things are critical. All of those things are necessary. But he focuses on this thing. The foundation of the believer's life. It's the love of Jesus. And that love is seen in three ways. Jesus died so everyone might die in him. One died for all. This is really interesting because the moment that he says, this is what's motivating me. This is what's compelling me. Then all of a sudden, Paul pauses in mid-sentence and invites both himself and the Corinthians to consider the implications of the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul thinks about Christ's love. The love that Jesus has shown, he thinks about his wonderful love, and then his mind begins to contemplate the deep meaning of the death of Jesus on the cross. One died for all, heis, huper, panton, apathanenen. Therefore all died, ara, hoi, pantes, apathenon. What does this mean? What is he saying? In his mind, as he contemplates it, he begins to think about the implication of the love. He thinks about the implication of the sacrifice of the son. 
Paul says whatever else is unclear, there is one thing that is clear. So think about it. He's thinking about the love of Jesus. He's thinking about the sacrifice of Jesus. And as he thinks about the love of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus, he considers it. And he says to himself that if one died for all, then all were dead. What's he saying? Whatever else is true. The Lord Jesus Christ would not have to leave heaven. He wouldn't have to suffer. He wouldn't have to bleed. He wouldn't have to die on a cruel cross. Unless human beings really needed a savior. I want you to think about that for just a moment, because as Paul considers the love of God and the love of Christ, he begins to think, he begins to meditate on it. And as he begins to meditate on it, he comes to the conclusion that the very fact that Jesus died is proof positive that all men were dead in trespasses and in sins. And if all men were dead in trespasses and sins and God would have to display his love in the person of Jesus, then he begins to consider the reality that everyone, everyone, everyone needs a savior. No exceptions. He says, and he died for all that those who should live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So when you look at verse 15 and he died for all. Really? For all? In what sense did he die for all? Is Paul suggesting universal salvation? Is he suggesting that in the physical propitiatory act of Jesus coming and dying, is he suggesting for a moment universal salvation? That whether people like it or not, they're going to be saved. Is that what he's saying? He can't be saying that. Because there's constant warning to accept, believe, Embrace the gospel. I think what Paul means in the context in which he's speaking and every other book he's ever written, I think it means that all who are redeemed by faith in Christ. God credits the death of Jesus as the death that we deserve. God accepts the death of Christ as the death of that person. And that that should that should cause you to wake up. Paul is arguing that the death of Jesus is the death that we deserve. And so God accepts the death of Jesus the same as if it were your death. The same as if you got exactly what you deserve. The American Standard Version changes the last part of the verse to read, Therefore, all died. So what's the difference? Well, the thought is somewhat different. The thought here would be that if Jesus died for all, he was dying as their substitute. He was dying as their represented representative. He died. Then all who are in him died also. So Paul argues. He Died for all. Question. Why did he die 
for all. Paul's answer. So that those who live by faith and through faith in him should no longer live for themselves or unto themselves, but unto him. Think about it. Remember, it's in the context of the criticism that he's been receiving of the outward appearance and the inward appearance of what is motivating him. And so what he's doing is he's reminding people that the reason why Jesus died is so that we would no longer have to be selfish. That we would no longer have to be self-centered. How are we to conclude that Jesus died so that we could have more pleasure or more money or more possessions or more power or more position or more recognition or more recreation? So Paul is making the point. Not that we don't provide for our family or not that we don't have needs or necessities. Paul is making the point that because Jesus died, we are given the privilege of not existing for ourselves. Jesus died to bring us near to God. Jesus died so that we could live in righteousness. Jesus died to purify us. Jesus died so that we could serve him. So Paul writes in Titus chapter 2 verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself (laughs) a peculiar people, kind of crazy, zealous of good works. Think about Paul's arguments here and elsewhere. Bring us near to God. Live in righteousness. Purify. Zealous. To serve. Romans chapter 14 verse 9. For to this end Christ both died and rose and received that he might be the Lord. Both of the dead and of the living. So Paul shakes us and wakes us. And demands that we see past the simple story of Jesus' death. And learn what that death means. Jesus died, right. Why did he die? He died so that you don't have to live for yourself. To satisfy yourself. To please yourself. We can't live our lives the way we used to live. In petty selfishness. In self-serving fashion. And so what does all of this mean? Paul is making the strong argument. He died for us so that we could live for him. We can turn our lives over to him in joyful, willing, glad devotion. And this, my friend, is Paul's argument for his motive of why he continues in the ministry. And this becomes one of the most important, joyful, grace-filled truths that a Christian could ever learn. Jesus died for me so that I can live for him. One Bible writer says, in dying for us, Christ has done for us something so immense in love that we ought to be his and only his forever. To make us his is the very object of his death. You should pause for a moment and think about that. 
Let that soak in for just a moment. Jesus dies to make us his, the object of his affection, the object of his friendship and relationship. Think about what Paul is saying. We're open to being misunderstood because understand what's at stake. Souls are in the balance. Think about what Paul is saying. We have a unique mission and we have a unique motive. We're compelled by supernatural forces. It's the love of God. It's the love of Christ. It isn't for ministry. It isn't for notoriety. It isn't so that you can be on television or have a radio program. It isn't so that you can make a living. It isn't so that you can be known. It isn't for any of those reasons. It's for the reasons that he says. This is a force hardly seen in the world and rarely understood. And so Paul is claiming that the love of Jesus is controlling him. That's what he's claiming. Could you make that same claim? Is the reason why you do what you do? Because Jesus is controlling you. Jesus is compelling you. Jesus is directing you. Jesus is guiding you. And think about it. The love is tied to the message. And what is the message? Jesus died for us. We were dead spiritually. We need someone to give us life. Once we give Jesus our lives, we're given a new passion and a new desire to live for him. And now pause. Because once you say that message, the world will think you are nuts. Why do you live? To love Jesus and serve others. That's crazy talk. That's crazy talk. We live in a world where you live for yourself and you die for yourself and you, you take, look after yourself. How many times have you heard someone say, well, you've got to take care of yourself. I mean, you're so busy looking after everyone else. Who's looking after you? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting even for a moment that you be stupid or that you, you know, that you not eat and that you not sleep and that you that you somehow ignore, neglect the common necessities of life. But remember what the world in which we're living, it's trying to push you in a different direction away from the love of God and away from service to others. Because we have a different motivation. We have a different message. We also have a different value system. Look at verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. It's Paul's way of saying, look, we don't pay attention to anyone based on the way that they look or the way that they are. In this particular sense, when Paul writes We regard no one according to the flesh. He means the physical existence apart from Christ. So when he says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, in what sense? Paul was alive during the ministry of Jesus. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Did he see Jesus die? Maybe not. Did he certainly see Stephen die? The biblical evidence supports it. 
even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. In what way? Paul argues that Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, in person showed up and changed his life. And look what else he says. Yet now we know him thus no longer. You mean Jesus doesn't physically manifest himself everywhere Paul goes in everything that Paul says? No. Does, does Jesus show up when he's shaving? Does Jesus show up when he wants to go bowling? Does Jesus have dinner with Paul? No. We live in a world where regard is rooted and grounded in the outward appearance. So what does Paul mean by that? Again, Paul is saying, look, we no longer make decisions on the basis of the way things look. The way people act, the way people dress, the way people talk. Paul says we don't make decisions based on if you're famous or if you're rich or if you're influential. People look at you and say, what are you doing with that person? Why are you with that person? Don't you realize you become like the people you hang out with? Exactly. Exactly. If you want to become like a person who knows Jesus and loves Jesus and serves others, doesn't it make sense that you would hang out with people like that? Paul looks at a person and ignores their clothes and ignores their car or chariot, their hair, their politics, their status. Paul looks past the cancer patient and the personal trainer. Paul doesn't say, you're a Roman centurion. I could really use you in the ministry because I get beat up a lot because of the message that I'm teaching. He doesn't look at people on the basis of what they can give to him. He looks at people on the basis of what he can give to them. I know it sounds crazy, but Paul divides the world into two categories. I know you think I'm going to say Italians and people who wish they were, but that's not the categories that Paul divides people into. They're lost or found, saved. Or unsaved, blind or sighted, dead or alive. So people with a unique message and people with a unique mission and people with a unique approach aren't simply interested in turning over a new leaf or going in a different direction. When Paul is preaching, he's not suggesting even for a moment, well, you know, I just want you to be a better person. Particularly for the person who thinks, I'm a good person. Why do I have to be different? I'm already a good person. Paul isn't looking for good people to be better people. He's looking for sinful people to become saved people. People typically don't identify groups in terms of sinners. Sinner is one of those words that has sort of lost its effect in our culture, in our society. People who know Jesus and people who love Jesus aren't content for more information. They want redemption and reconciliation and transformation. That's why Paul is going to say in the very next verse, which we'll look at next week, 
Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. It isn't reformation. It's transformation. Dr. David Smith writes, Though the apostle had once shared that Jewish ideal of a secular Messiah, he had now attained to a loftier conception. Christ was for him the risen and glorified Savior, truly not known according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, not by historic tradition, but by immediate and vital Fellowship. And see, this is one of the mistakes that I think Christians make because they think that the people who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and lived with Jesus and ate with Jesus and rode on the boat with Jesus are somehow at an advantage that you and I will never have. And Paul argues, no, you're the one who has the glorious advantage. Because Jesus is alive and Jesus is risen and Jesus is the powerful Savior who walks with you and talks with you and who leads you and guides you in the here and the now. I read an interesting story this week about a a man named Acerbo. He went crazy. A neighbor named Brunia took him in his car to a lunatic asylum. And as they drove to the lunatic asylum, the car collided with a truck. Both the insane Acerbo and his custodian, Brunia, were injured and they were taken to a hospital. And there the doctor discovered as a result of the crash, Acerbo had become sane and Brunia manifested all of the signs of being crazy. How does that happen? How does a collision change one person into another kind of person? And think about it. When we first meet Paul, he stands holding the clothes of Stephen as he's being stoned. Paul becomes filled with rage, zealous to arrest, execute, if necessary, Christians who threaten Judaism. Then Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's forever changed. Crazy. Saul collides with Christ and goes from insane to sane. Sane Saul stands accused of being insane Paul. Because Christ changes him and changes the insane Saul to the sane Saint Paul. Say that fast. Go figure. Think about Paul's recipe for sanity. Fear the Lord. Serve the saints. Love Jesus. Think about what Paul is saying. The people who are right in the head are those who fear the Lord, who serve the saints, and who love Jesus. Those are the people who are all right. More next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you. We praise you. We glorify you. Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts even now. Lord, we pray that you would help us do what Paul urges us to do. 
It isn't just simply to acknowledge the fact that Jesus has died. It's to consider the implications of that death. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus has died on the cross for sin? It means forgiveness. It means hope. It means redemption. It means change. It means that we are free to live our lives not in selfish ambitions, but with a new perspective. One imparted by Jesus. Lord, we have the freedom now to honor you. We have the freedom to serve one another. We have the freedom to experience genuine affection for Jesus. And then we can allow that affection to be manifest in a healthy way in which we respond to one another. A willingness to do what's right towards one another. Even if it means that we have less so that others can have more. Even if it means that we're a little bit empty so that others can be a little bit full. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We pray that you would prepare our hearts now as we have communion. That, Lord, we could honor you and remember you. And show your death and resurrection until you come. In Jesus' name, amen.